Hi, everyone. Uh, this is the Feeling Bookish podcast, and I'm Rob in Oregon, Rob Fay, with my partner, Roman Sivkin, who Yoo-hoo. is down in Ventura, California. And also with me in Oregon, in Portland, quarantining as he should, uh, is Heston Hoffman, our sound engineer. Uh, so welcome, everybody. We're glad to spend some time with you. And, uh, you know, like all of you, we're, we're still on pins and needles uh, as we wait the results of the U.S. presidential election. So we'll, well, we'll the see what happens. The results are in. <laughs> the results are in. We're waiting. Just I, I'm not even waiting anymore. I, I'm, I'm being facetious, man. I, I, I guess I got gotcha. you. <laughs> um, so so that's that's in the background. And, and there's been a lot in the background this year. Um, and uh, of course, with a global pandemic and a climate disaster one after another, you, you might have missed the other really big news, which is that uh, Roman donated his entire library to me this summer. So if you can believe it, I have how many boxes was it, Roman? 15, uh, 20? Something like 15 to 20. Forget already. Yep. And and so the, the absolutely shocking part is uh, when Roman uh, moved from Orange County to New York 15 years ago, he apparently sold a huge part of that collection. So that, so the fact that you reconstituted much of it is quite amazing. I, I can only imagine, Roman, if your 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 book uh, collection had never been split up, um, it would it oh would, yeah it would dominate. It would, would have been a lot of books, a lot of uh, books. But you know, you got to keep. Yeah, I mean, you got to got to be reasonable unless you have a a manor or a barony. Yes, yes. you're a baron and you have a barony, um, or you just have a big house. Yes. Uh, which I never have, and I never want to have a big house. That's not my uh, way I roll. But yeah, so you have to kind of shut it. It's 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 unfortunate, but you know, it's it's still out there somewhere in in my virtual space in the brain, my big library. <laughs> so so I I got the collection, and um, I I've been poking around in it, and and you know some of these books I remember from when we were kids. So it's it's really fun for me. Um, and so I thought what we could do today is I might just sort of throw, uh, some, some names and books at you and, and, uh, kind of see, we might call this, you know, ex libris Roman Sivkin and just sort of, um, uh, maybe you read the book, maybe you didn't, uh, maybe you read it and tossed it to the side or, or maybe Ooh. again, it's a book that you, um, Ooh, I'm excited. This yeah. Exciting, that, that, that you read in the past Scared and, and have forgotten. So, um, <laughs> So I grabbed a few books, but before I begin, I, I do want to, and this is where maybe uh, listeners can can help us a bit. So the one caveat with, you know, getting this great gift from Roman is that Roman had a cat. And so um, I am I am stunned that every time I open a book, I, I, I am triggered. And I, I literally took the books that I wanted to read in the short term, took them out this summer and like had a duster and and... And they still trigger me. So if if anyone out there has any tips on how to uh, uh, de-louse isn't the right word. Yeah, decat books. That would be a great help so that, you know, I can (laughs) dig in. So 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 that being that. But um, so I grabbed a sample of books, books that I'm interested in. And I'd be curious, you know, what your experience was um, with them. And the first one is that I'll I'll sort of pull out here. It isn't a novel. but it caught my attention because of the times we live in. And then I've had some serendipitous moments with it. And that is the book, uh, The Mass Psychology of Fascism oh, uh, by, William, by William Reich. Yes. And so um, I can give you just two points of serendipity and then I can 
I'll be curious what you think, where you got it, how you came across it. But the first one was I, I saw it and, I, and I've heard of the book and I thought, oh, this is, might be useful, kind of a, a useful handbook for the times we live in. And so I, I opened it up and right away I saw this quote that you know, really made me think of the, the, the support that Donald Trump has in the United States. And this was actually one of the um, Nazi propagandists in the 1930s. And he was asked about methods and means of propagation, uh, propaganda. And, you know, there was some confusion among liberals in Germany in the 30s and in the 20s. We, we made these great rational arguments against the Nazi party, yet the people supported uh, uh, Nazism in great numbers. And we should point out that Hitler gained uh, his power by democratic means, right? So um, so one of the things he said was that um, Nazism cannot be got at with rational arguments because mm. Nazism never attempted to make rational arguments. And, and so it really makes me think about, you know, make America great again, right? Which isn't, was, isn't a specific you know, policy or uh, uh, suggestion, but simply right. an emotional thing, right? So it it was really helpful to think about, because I know a lot of people get frustrated, even uh, with our election, you know, why did so many people vote for the Republican Party when it seems to be a party that, um, you know, is, is beyond the norms of American political life? And so I found that helpful. Right. And then I've, I've been reading a wonderful book, which I recommend to everyone, called The Future is History by the Russian... American journalist Masha Gessen. Gessen, yeah, she's yeah, wonderful. She's, she's wonderful, and she's been on television a lot lately because she has a new book. Um, and again, she's sort of a a kind of expert on uh, totalitarianism. But she um, she basically said that William Reich probably has the best definition of of or the best explanation of why you know a um, populist dictator can take hold, a la you know I'm not saying that Trump is equivalent to Hitler, but specifically with someone like Hitler, she was just saying that um, often it's it's times of great um, personal, financial, and existential unknown and un insecurity that really allow, um, you know, a populist, manipulative, authoritarian figure to to come mm -hmm. about. Um, so, so that's the book, The Mass Psychology of Fascism. Uh, did you read this? How did you get introduced? It, it's to funny it? that yeah, it's funny that you pulled this book up, man. Because when I was um, like 19, 20 years old, as an undergraduate at um, at UMass Amherst, I was talking to one of my favorite professors, and uh, in his in his office during his office hours, and then he had some phone calls. So I was looking around his books around his office, and I see this mass psychology of fascism. I have this nice little talk to him about it. And uh, it's the first time I think I noted it, but then I, I you know, Burroughs talks about a lot about uh, the, the yes. whole orgone yeah. energy. He had an orgone box that he used a lot. He um, he certainly talks about Reich as well. Robert Anton Wilson has a whole book about William Reich. It's called William Reich in Hell. Um, it's, I think it's one of his only plays. Um, and it's just... So I right away, you know, right from the my early twenties uh, as a teen as, as well, kind of like I think nineteen, I was reading raw, and I think being exposed to William Reich at that point, um, and it really uh, the whole you know the, the whole emphasis on the body that Reich had. Uh, he he spawned the whole. He was kind of responsible. Well, okay, let me back up. Uh, you have Freud, 
as kind of the father of this movement of, you know, exploring the psyche. Uh, you have Jung, which is kind of the more mythopoetic side of it. And then you have Reich, the third wheel, uh, that a lot of people die, are not aware that he really should be in that triad. Uh, he should, should be taken seriously. Uh, because he did kind of go off the rails um, a little bit. Um, and I'm, I know I'm jumping around. I'm hoping people don't really use me as a sort of intro to William Reich. But uh, fascinating, fascinating thinker. Uh, he had some uh, kind of a semi-commune thing going for a while. He was uh, really apparently kinky into sex, kinky sex stuff as well. Maybe it's all tied to this whole body-centered center, um, thing that he was into. But, um, he, you know, he... Claimed to discover this whole, this whole thing, this whole energy field, or this this source of life uh, that he called Orgon, um, and he claimed to be able to capture and direct it. He did some interesting weather experiments, experiments up in Maine, I believe. That's where he had his little little uh, piece of Eden. Um, uh, so. He was just a fascinating uh, personality that that kind of led into a lot of like you know I don't know if you've heard of Rolfing. Have you heard of Rolf Ida Rolf? She was no. a, yeah, kind of in the beginning of the whole human potential thing. And Rolfing involves it's like a type of a I, I, again. Don't take me as an authority. I'm just going off of my memory. Uh, I believe it's a type of a massage or almost like a psychological that's that's tied into some sort of psychoanalytic work because it's really deep it's deep tissue massage to the point where you cry uh usually if it's a good rolfing section session uh, you really should be crying from pain from this release of this all this crazy tension and the idea is to break your body armor or make you aware of it so that you can sort of loosen it up um and I think body armor, when I say body armor, Rob, you know what I mean, right? Well, this sounds like something you would, a course you would have taken at the Esalen Institute in 1972. Well, it's very much, Esalen is, is, is in the spirit of Reich. I mean, Esalen is, uh, grew out of Reichian thinking in a lot of ways, in addition to some of that more, more of American strain. Um, but Reich almost kind of, always reminded me a little bit of, um, you know, he was, he was, I believe he was German. I don't want to, again, I'm not sure, but he came from that sort of oral world from Europe to America during this, this incredible uh, revival of this you know, possibility of what we can do post-World War II. But he, because he sort of flew too close to the sun uh, and he really claimed the things that his therapies really worked and he... He was considered a quack. He started, he start, you know, the government considered him, the U.S. government specifically, started considering this quack who was promising these cures that weren't real. And so, uh, this, and I'm getting this information from Robert Anton Wilson. They burned his books. Um, they actually have collected, you know, confiscated a bunch of his books and literally put them in the incinerator. And this is not Nazi Germany, you know. This is, uh, this is what, 50s, late 50s mm. America? Uh, maybe even 60s America. Um, officially, we, our taxpaying money, went to somebody who went into somebody's house and collected a bunch of, you know, funky, interesting books that had nothing to do with hate. They weren't promoting anything like that. They were mm -hmm. just weird, you know, thought experiments. Uh, and they burned them because they're not supposedly, you know, 
the government decided they're not good for our consumption. So it's a it's a harrowing moment in American history that's been kind of forgotten, a little bit like the Rosen Rosenbergs, you know, that's obviously better known. But you know, burning books is different from <laughs> burning people or yeah. frying them. Um, but but you know, it's along the same lines. Um, it's in the same universe. So yeah, so yeah, interesting book, man. Very very goes way back for me for sure. Um, but I haven't read much of Reich myself. I've read little essays. I haven't that book I've dipped into here and there. Um, it's a whole universe that I just simply have no I, mean, I have no bandwidth left for for Reich. I, I think it's good to know to be aware of what kind of uh, experience he had when he was trying to be uh, just an American, you know, uh, doing his this this thing. Um, and the way he influenced Burroughs and uh, Orgone, I'm interesting. I don't know. I haven't really kept up with the with the whole thing. I don't know if it's there's certainly other iterations of this kind of thinking with um, some sort of bio biocentric uh, field or or energy that if people have theorized from from uh, Rupert Sheldrake to you know the Gaia phenomenon. Um, so I think he was in the ballpark of something really interesting. Whether he was he should be followed by you know like as, as a guru, which I think he he tended to be. Uh, I don't think that's right either, obviously. Um, but there's so much, so much interesting yeah. stuff. I think I urge people to, if if you're at all interested about you know, body culture and, and Esalen and the way the self-improvement movement, this whole part of the 60s chunk that is so important, uh, he was certainly, he certainly contributed to a lot of his DNA is in there for sure. Yeah. So yeah, interesting book. And, and you're, you're, if you're following, um, uh, you know, PBS style uh, discussion shows and so forth. There, there are several books and authors floating around that are that are examining fascism for obvious reasons. And and to kind of close on this particular book, I I would say one thing I've heard from one of the contemporary writers, which is useful for our thinking, is that you can have a fascist movement within a democracy. And so I think that's important for Americans to actually think about because a lot of times the question is sort of like. You know, is the entire governmental structure moving towards a, you know, a vertical totalitarian system? Um, and probably the answer is maybe not. But you, but again, you can have a political party that is, you know, testing. And so that might be one thing to think about. All right. I want to shift gears. And um, this I. I I can't say I'm going to read all of the books that I've pulled out here, but but this is something that I, I do want to jump into. And these are two volumes, two companion volumes, and they're they're really cool old uh, Norton editions, probably from the 1950s. And it is uh, the letters of uh, Reina Maria Rilke. Oh right? yeah, yeah. So oh, yeah. so you've you've got the. Um, uh, uh, a volume from the late 19th century and one that goes into the early 20th century, two volumes. And, and so, uh, you know, German poet, I think most people are familiar with, uh, Rilke for his, um, his book, uh, letters to a young poet, which, um, you know, as a precocious, I think 23 year old, I read, uh, and, and being, uh, self-centered precocious and, and valuing thinking that I was completely special and was bound to be, uh, a literary star that was just going to destroy everything. Uh, I took that book personally and I thought, oh, this is the book to me. Yeah. And I think it's probably the kind of book you want to read when you're, you know, between 15 and 
Yeah, it's a wonderful young man's, you know, woman's inspirational kind of gets you into the world. As you as you enter the world, it's a great, uh, great little yeah. companion. Yes. So so that's probably the intro that most people have. I, I would think that's probably more widely read than his actual poems. But I wasn't aware that, um, you know, the whole subject of writers and their letters is something that we should do oh, an yeah. entire episode on. Yeah. And, and it's I, I've set some time aside to uh, to read certain writers' letters. Uh, Flaubert is one, uh, Proust is another, and, and, and Rilke is going to be one of them. There, there are certain writers who are known for their, yes. you know, amazing sort of letters. Um, I've spent some time with Samuel Beckett's letters and, and wrote a little bit about those. But uh, what's the deal with these? Do you remember well, how I, you came across these volumes? Did you uh, I, I believe, no, I don't. No, I'm, I'm going to be lying to you, so I don't want to lie. I don't, I do not remember. I've had them for a while. And uh, like you, I am, I was planning on reading them and I never got around to them. I have read, uh, which is not too far on my shelf, maybe in the same, in the same box where you pulled uh, those volumes out of, is I do have Flaubert's letters and I have read those Um and really, really enjoyed them. Uh, I went through the crazy, you know, the crazy sort of Flaubert period. Uh, with real care, I'm a little bit... Um, I, I I have explored the poems. Uh, I have explored uh, some of Rilke. Uh, uh, as we were talking about Musil and, and the Vienna sort of atmosphere uh, of the man with our qualities and leading up to that, we talked about Rilke's, um, I believe, one and only novel. Um, so... So I I am still I am still because the the Duino I believe it pronounced the Duino elegies the 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 poem the late poems are really um, interesting they're very different from what I'm used to um, reading as poetry and so I I really just kind of at a bit of a distance like 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 his ideas I really you know it's like with Herman Hesse I mean a different artist completely different artist. Um, but a similar approach, uh, again, maybe uh, as a young man, uh, young woman, you would have more of an in here. But with Rilke, I think you can definitely, he, he matures on you, you know what I mean? He matures as you mature. So I think it's one of those poets, especially to revisit as a, I mean, I, I don't know about the letters. I don't know what kind of stuff is in the letters, really. I was really kind of chomping at the bit to read them, but it's just not a priority for me for some yeah. reason. Yep. So I, I think I'm just not, I'm, I'm just immature uh, in my reading as far as that goes. Well, because Rook is deep, man. He's really deep. He's got something there. Maybe it's because yeah. I, I'm getting, getting it secondhand with English. Um, and, and, and I think, I think not, having not read them, um, goes to our podcast, Anxiety in the Reading Life, which a lot of people have re re reached out to us and said that, you know, hit home with them. And again, it's this idea of like, I, I only have so many, so so much resources in terms of time. And I, I'm sure if you put your focus on these letters, you would be enriched. But, um, you know, there there are just so many reading demands. And, and you know, quite frankly, you and I doing this podcast, we, uh, we have guests coming, we have books that we want to... Um, you know, we, we have a lot of uh, maybe quote unquote professional reading, right? In addition right. to our own interests. Right. So it's, it gets demanding. Well, I mean, look, I mean, certain, certain authors, you can sort of, not that you want to do it, but, but you sort of have 
an understanding of what they're about. Like for instance, not authors, maybe specific books. Let, let's not jump to authors because I think that's 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 not fair because they're you know people are whole entire universes. But specific books, um, you can sort of get an understanding of it without necessarily reading it. Um, for certain purposes, like with the notebooks of Malta Lauritz Brigger, which I'm hoping pronouncing it right, this Nyarilka's only novel, um, I would like to read it at some point, but when I was preparing for our musal, uh, reading and talking with Janice uh, Grill about it, I wanted to sort of get a deeper understanding of, of Vienna, and so I read about the notebooks of Malta Lauritz Brigger, you know, I read about the novel, yeah. and it gave me an, an understanding of, of Rilke as a person a little bit, because I didn't just read a, a short review. I, you know, I, I kind of dug into it. I, I looked at the actual text. I looked reviews and just analysis, just trying to understand what the book was about, because I was in my own mind and making the connection to Musil and to how it, you know, how the the, the consciousness was tra being yeah. transformed yeah. at the time. And so I didn't need to read that. Now, Rilke, in its, in its own right, is apart from Musil and apart from everything else, deserves to be read for sure. Mm. But... I, I I wish I had seventeen brains. I, I know, want, you know, I, I, just, just no. I, 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 I don't understand how to do it. Yes, I could become a monk and cut out the Netflix and hang out with my wife and making Russian right. honey cake, you know, and and just just really be a dedicated reader. But I think that would diminish my life. That would make me a worse reader ultimately. Um, and so you have to get some concessions now. What I do with books like The Letters of Rilke, why they are on my shelf and why I save them and, and it's because at some point I will, I will get to them. I mean, unless I die or something, you know, I will read this. And so I love this idea. No, no you won't because they're mine now. Well, no, I will read them <laughs> at some point. I will, I will definitely read them because he's an author that will have to come across my, my brain again. It will have to sort of wash my brain with, with it, you know, his, his, yeah. His thinking and particularly the the poetry. But again, I'm goddamn it, I wish I knew German. You know, I just really with poetry, it's so hard translated poetry. This, this frustration, you know, wishing there were seven Romans. And and so, you know, and I talked about this a little bit on that anxiety podcast, but you know, what I dream about is focusing on whoever it is, a, a mm -hmm. big time author on my hit list. And what I dream about is reading the three or four principal novels. The key biography in the English language, right? So it depends. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't, I don't, I read a little bit in French. Mm -hmm. um, and then the letters, if they exist, right? So mm -hmm. we're talking four novels, say the biography, the letters, then uh, the key critic, you know, let's say if it's William Gaddis, right? It's Stephen Moore. And then, as, as you're suggesting with, you know, learning about Vienna, a la Robert Musil, then, you know, perhaps some, um, you know, historical, cultural context to help me glue that together. But that, I mean, that's what people do in, to get PhDs, right? I mean, this is essentially yeah. what they yeah, do. Yeah, they dig into, into stuff, to find stuff, yeah, the but, connections. But, but I, connections. you know, and this, I feel passionate about this. Like, I, I know that, so I, I, you know, I only have an undergraduate degree. I have no connection to the university. I have worked in, you know, editing public relations and marketing my whole life where, where people have no connection to the literary world. Um, you know, uh, I've written a little bit here and there book reviews and essays and so forth, but I've, I've never had the time, right. To, mm. 
to really do that. And I know that in a parallel universe, there is a, a Robert Fay who is, as you suggested, is, is basically a hermit. He is um, he has a Ph.D. in French literature and he he spends hours upon hours in the library and is is very enriched. And so sometimes I, I feel regrets, not the word, but a certain sadness or a longing for this yeah. parallel life where because yeah. I know and, and, and I know, you know, this feeling, the riches that come to you when you you focus and you concentrate mm -hmm. and you dig, you dig a little bit deeper. And, and, and I, you know, I, you can probably hear it in my voice. I, I feel sad that I can't do that. However, however, what I've come to, and when I read about the lives of great authors, you almost never find a life where they were, you know, off in a cabin in the woods of Maine and mm. wrote their four masterpieces. What people do is they produce books or they have rich reading lives or they have rich study lives of study, or even, you know, in your case, you know, you have a rich family life with, with children and a wife and, and you do those things despite all the distractions. Right. That's right. it. That's what yeah. it means to be, you know, a, a well-rounded human being, I think. So, so I've kind of come to the, come, come to a certain piece that I'm not a, uh, you know, a scholar. Right. Uh, right. Well, we can't can help, feel... we can't help but to be interested in this stuff anyway. But, and also, I mean, look, we also have to give thanks to the people who do dedicate their lives to those little cubby holes and who go, you know, who's who sacrifice their you know, eyesight for, for finding out this arcane little details about uh, art that we, uh, maybe come across uh, briefly in some Wikipedia mention or something like that, and maybe not think much about it. But it's an it's an essential little piece of information that connects something, that connects something, that connects something, and then you have a bigger and bigger, better picture. And so I, I just really appreciate those people who do have a the discipline and b the the the, the brain to to engage in such a often unrewarded and, you know, not very rewarding work, uh, certainly not lauded by the culture, uh, uh, you know. Uh, so thank you guys and yeah. gals for doing that because it's just, yeah, we really appreciate us, our, our amateurs. Uh, we do, I mean, your work does count. Uh, it's important to keep this chain of knowledge going. Um, right. Just we just don't have the we, we're not built that way. That's just our lives didn't right. end up that way. But to yeah. get, get back to the letters, Rob, yeah. before we move on to the letters from the letters, um, I'm particularly excited uh, to read letters that are new. Like for instance, when the Gaddis letters came out, and I was already such a huge Gaddis fan. You know, this was only like 2014. I mean, this 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 there's not even a Gaddis a really good Gaddis bio. It's like nothing comprehensive. Anyway, uh, when the letters <laughs> came out. Uh, uh, Stephen Moore is the editor. I was enjoying them so much, and there's rumor that there's a new, you know, there's new editions of Gaddis coming up. There's rumors that Stephen Moore is going to select yet a different selection of letters and put it out again. There's going to be a new collection of letters. I'm super excited about that. That's I think it's coming up soon. And then, please, I've talked about this before. Nobody's going to listen to me because no, I don't know who's listening to us anyway. But it's Bukowski and the Harold Norris letters. Uh, if somebody, somebody needs this to publish, publish their letters. There's some sort of um, rights spat between Bukowski's uh, wife. I don't know, something's going on preventing the release of this uh, collection. And there there are, I, I just would love to have this for various, various reasons. And they're all uh, 
literary, so <laughs> I don't want to go into them yeah. now. Uh, but Bukowski, Harold Norris letters would be just like I would just be salivate over them. Nice. Well, people are listening, so that, that okay. there it is. There it is. All right. Um, so we'll move here to a very different universe. And so this is a book that I think most people are aware that it's it's a book to get to, a novel to get to. But the person who really pushed it for me, uh, who was a, a bit of a book evangelist in his own way, or was, sadly, was uh, Anthony Bourdain, who I, I, I hesitate to call anyone on television a hero of mine, but he was. I think what he did with, with um, those travel shows, they, they were far more than travel shows. They were almost, um, you know, uh, art experiments in, in what television could be. And, and so he was... Um, he was a literary person for sure, extremely well-read, uh, very solid writer in his own right. And so Anthony Bourdain was enthralled with uh, Under the Volcano by yes. Malcolm Lowry. Yes. And so so you have that on your shelf. Um, it, it's one of those books that, um, you know, I think he did a, a travel episode on Mexico, right? Because I yeah. think Low Lowry had been a... I remember him mentioning it like, wow, Anthony. Yeah, and that, and that's where, yeah. I mean, yeah. look, look, folks, like, this is the guy who did an episode on Tangiers and spent a certain amount of that episode talking about the Beats and William Burroughs. I, I remember sitting in my seat and turning to my wife, Tomoe, and going, William Burroughs is being talked about on CNN. And I just couldn't believe it. You know, so this is what he brought to the table. So um, I haven't read the book. You know, I'm, I'm aware of Lowry's uh, alcoholism. And I think you know, Bourdain had that, he kind of idolized, I think, the tragic artist, and, and maybe for obvious reasons, right. um, he was a bit of a, he was drawn to that. He had been a heroin addict. Uh, he had been in New York in the late 70s when, um, you know, the lower Manhattan was filled with, you know, Basquiat and uh, even, you know, Madonna was a, a young unknown singer at the time. A lot of funky people and drugs were very common. Have you read this book? And, and, and dude, I, I hope this doesn't turn into the episode of where like you've read none of these books. But, no, 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 but, no, no, no. That, that would that be would, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, I can, I can, I can safely say that I've read it and I have enjoyed it enormously. It's uh, so not the, an easy yeah. book, not an easy yeah. book to read uh, from from several perspectives. Uh, but it's so rewarding. It's sad. Um, the sadness pervades it like some sort of uh, syrup that you know that. Just like it's in every nook and cranny, but it's bittersweet. The syrup—it's a—it's—it's uh, um, it's a little bit of a neglect. It's like a, it's a masterpiece on the on the side, so to speak. You know, it's kind of like off off the beaten path a little bit. Um, and and the way I got to it is interesting because I didn't get to it through Bourdain like you did. I got to it uh, through David Markson. Oh yeah, yeah, who's one of my favorite novelists. Um, who was also <laughs> neglected, uh, unfortunately. Uh, but um, David Markson uh, early on recognized the the wonder that is under the volcano. This this basically a, a masterpiece. Oh, no minor, nothing about the. It's just it's a really 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 uh, deep book. Um, and he 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 wrote he wrote to Malcolm Lowry. I believe he became friends, and he tried to publish it, or he tried to encourage its publication, something like that, I believe. And so when when David Markson, whom I adored, spoke so highly and had such a high uh, you know, opinion of this book, of course, I got it. And I mean, I think that's 
Uh, you know, that's it's it's one of the more obvious ways that we get to books, right? We get yeah. to f discover new authors through through the, the the writers that we we love. So it's a kind of this interesting chain of propagation. But but with Under the Volcano, I it I would love to reread it. When I read it, I was I was um, still on a sort of the Marxonian kind of star, and I read it in that spirit, uh, which is kind of weird because Marxon has a different flavor completely. Um, um, but but in any case, my point is that it's uh, I only read it once, and so yeah. that doesn't count. Yeah, Nabokov said that's that's not doesn't count. Rereading is the only reading. And, and uh, my my sense that this book also it to me personifies, you know, there, there are many writers who really what's going to survive is one book and, and they, they are not known for having written, you know, right. a number of great books. And so, um, I, that seems to be the case with Lowry that this is, he's got, this... he's got some more writing. If you look, if, 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 uh, if you're one of those people who, once you start reading out of the volcano and it gets under your skin as I suspect it will, uh, and you read it and you really get going with that energy and you just like, then you go ahead and read everything. You know, that's my point is that's, I didn't get to that point. I didn't get to the point where I really want to explore what the hell's going on with Lowry because he's, it's, it's a little sad. And I tend to yeah, not sad from, you know, simplistic kind of like, oh, it's kind of a sad story because he's a drunk, but the, the, the existential sort of, it's, it's not an existential thumbs up. Let me put it that way. I don't know how to express myself. It's a yeah. thumbs down that's so beautifully expressed uh, and and not as simplistic as I'm describing it. Please don't, don't, don't pigeonhole it like that. Um, it's got lots and lots of avenues of, of, of approach and sadness is not, does not necessarily have to be one of them, but for me, it predominated. And so as a flavor, I enjoy it. I think it's an important aspect of art, but I am more for an exuberance of joy. Yeah, I'm more I, for um, a book that gives me that. I, I'd argue the alcohol. I mean, uh, maybe, authors, authors who really it's explore depressant. alcohol. Yeah. Yes, he, but look, look, going back to Bukowski. Bukowski, uh, you know, that was that was definitely part of his uh, his makeup, his alcohol, yeah. and it in, infused everything he wrote. But but it was what what was he able to do? And I think I, Lowry, to a large extent, was able to do with this book. He would transform this this um, horrible weight into something that was, um, like I mentioned before, this alchemical kind of transformation into this incredible piece of work. Same thing with uh, Exley, Fred, Frederick Exley, you know, yeah. with the fans notes, yeah. or any kind of alcoholic literature. They, they, are, they are screaming to us from below, from the deeps of the ocean. It's, they have this, all this weight of the waters on them. Of agua, well, the, the water of life, you know, the whiskey well, is on them. <laughs> yeah, and you mentioned because the fact yeah, that I, they were able to, to to just get this message yep. across is I, such a testament. You know, I, I think the reason Bukowski doesn't have that you know depressing sense with his his material, knowing his background with drinking, is because he was an incredibly ambitious person. He was raised in a rather middle class environment, was rejected. And he rejected all of that. But when he eventually got recognition towards the end of his life, he bought a, you know, a big house in Long Beach. He drove a, a Mercedes. And he was quite proud of that. He was like, I came from shit and no one helped me. And I knew that I had the spark in me. Well, that's and that's why that's exactly put your finger. So on he was driven. 
because he had that life force that overrode yes. the horrible cards that life gave him. And right. he just insisted. He right. insisted with his own blood and shit to yeah. be heard as an artist. And so, like, in contrast, Jack Kerouac, who also went deep with the alcohol, didn't have that. He he was hurt by life, right? It hurt him deeply. And he he could not recover despite his talent, right? Right. So, so yeah, I mean, right. Al alcohol can, it plays differently with different people. It's, it's, uh, it's an ally. It's a, it's an artistic ally that is very dangerous to have. If you're going to adopt this as your as a creative partner, <laughs> you better have cojones right. and be, and be ready to suffer and, and fail because that's probably what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. It, I, I agree. I mean, you know, there's examples, Faulkner, um, just incredibly talented, but to be able to have his output and, and to be as dedicated to drinking as that, I mean, it's, you know, you see what happened to Fitzgerald, he couldn't overcome it. Well, Hemingway killed himself. I yeah. mean, but they all, they all had this deal with alcohol, right? They all had this deal. It did, I mean, let's not fool ourselves. It did fuel some of their creativity. It did fuel some of their flights of imagination, some of their ability to, to write down something that they wouldn't have written down sober. Um, you know, it does have that kind of, again, it's not an enhancer of creativity, plus don't misunderstand me. It's some, it's a, it's a chemical. Our brain is always changing. You know, I'm talking to you right now. My brain is changing. I will open the door after we've done recording. My brain will change because I'll be entering a different world. You drink, you drink a beer, your brain changes. You drink, you know, so it, I'm not, I just think the actual yeah, I know specific, what I know what you're saying. specific yeah. uh, substance alcohol is some sort of uh, if you want to, I like to think of it as some sort of an ally or or a plant spirit, if you want, because it's a, it's a product of fermentation that's been with us since forever. It's part of ours, um, part of our culture. Um, but it's it's like a business partner. If you're going to be an artist, you're going to if you're going to enter this partnership, you better have a fucking uh, solid contract that has a lot of clauses. Uh, yeah, <laughs> right. Because you got to be in deep otherwise. Yeah, right. It, it's a tricky. Uh, it's a serpent-like. Right. Yeah. You just got to keep your eye on it. And I, I saw, you know, I've seen family members who who played around with it and, you know, they don't make it through. Um, yeah. But he, but but under the volcano made it through. And yeah, boy, it, it's an it's 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 it's. Yeah. So Stop so I, I I want to draw attention to the, the fantastic segue that I'm about to make. And I want I want all people involved to just be like, wow, Rob really. He really hit it out of the park here. So the the afterword to uh, Under the Volcano is written by someone who I think we should talk more about. We should do a podcast on, hint, hint. I know he's not in your wheelhouse as much, but William T. Volman, right? So he, he, yeah. loved, he loved Lowry, and he wrote a um, an afterword to this book. And as a segue to the next book I want to throw at you, I should point out that— um, to me, the classic Volman book is the the book Europe Central, and and one of the interesting pieces in there is he he examines Shostakovich mm. and Shostakovich's work on the uh, the eighth string quartet, oh. right? Which, which is which is a universe, which is a universe. Oh. And, and so so you know, dude, that alone should make you read Volman. Although you shouldn't need that specific reason. I know. But, I but the no, wonderful thing. Man. But dude, yeah, the, yeah. the amazing thing, I, let me finish, yeah. is that in the in Europe Central, right? He 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 examines Shostakovich as an artist with Stalin, Stalin's you know boot on his neck, and and you know that being enough, I mean, to drive anyone crazy. And he talks about how 
the eighth string quartet for Shostakovich was a kind of like, um, like uh, if you picture a, a floor in the living room and you have a little trap door that opens and you can sort of like sneak into the trap door into the basement, that the A string quartet for Shostakovich was, was the trap door where he could try to express what he needed to while there was a, uh, mm. the end of a rifle pointed at him. And this yeah. is an exaggeration to yeah. an artist during the time of Stalin was to, I mean, to look over your shoulder in a way that's unimaginable uh, for most artists who have, you know, enough problems to begin with. So, so yeah, that, no, that's, sorry, that, that's, that book is incredible. And, and so I uh, recommend it highly. But I don't. I don't. I don't. I've. I've been meeting. You know, Joyce. I'm not comparing myself to Joyce, please. But Joyce, um, when he was especially composing Finnegan's Wake, he would. He needed so many sources for his book, uh, that he just couldn't. Like we were just talking about, he couldn't read everything, right? I mean, the guy was also mostly blind, so he just couldn't read all the books that he wanted to read, and so he would ask friends to read it for him. Uh, he was specifically, he would like write, you know, hey, Rob, uh, could you please read the volume three of um, of this guy's writings, you know, you know, from page 200 to whatever. Yeah, specific requests. Mm. And then ask them, his friends to report <laughs> on what they've read. So I, for years now, Rob, I've been relying on you. You're my T William T. Volman guy. You are, yeah. you are the I, person I, who I, reads Volman for me, tells me all about him because I know it should be. I know I it's a the guy I've read as, as I've read parts of you know books yeah. I've read essays I know that he works himself literally to the bone sometimes yeah. not literally but all, close to literally because I know he's written about uh, physically falling apart as a writer because he does so much of you know yeah. typing um, that he so I rely on you to sort of to to kind of give me this Volman thing but with the and I'll get to this book. I promise you, I'll get to this book at some point. But uh, I was going to say something about Shostakovich. Oh, did yeah. you? Does Does he mention that anecdote? I don't know if it's a apocryphal or what. Uh, about when he finished composing the Eighth Quartet, which, by the way, listeners, please uh, yeah. talk about sad. Uh, it's it's uh, you have just it's need to listen to in a darkened room, uh, maybe with some uh, antidepressants, uh, you know, <laughs> as a, as a, as an aperitif. Um, but, um, no, it's not that it's really just oh, a profound yeah. work, but yes. he, he asked some friends to come over to his apartment and, uh, play this piece for him. So you can actually hear it. And apparently when they finished playing, they saw him sitting there in the corner and there were tears coming, you know, rolling down his cheeks, and they just packed up quietly and left. I think it's an apocryphal story or something like that, but it's a very touching story because when you do uh, listen to this piece and you sort of let it, and then you listen to it for the fifth and the tenth and the fiftieth time, and then you realize how the horrors of Stalinism are all there. Uh, the horrors of the 20th century, the first half of the 20th century are all there. Uh, you just have to listen. And, yeah. and, and if you're sensitive enough, it will, it will get through. Um, so it's a tough, tough work. And I, I, I really want to read this book because of the Shostakovich connection. Shostakovich yeah. pretty much not, not, you know, is in the, my pantheon of the top three, four composers. Um, by the way, Rob, I discovered Scriabin the other day. I started oh. listening to Scriabin. Never listened to Scriabin before. Isn't that weird? I'm such a classical music nut. Mm -hmm. And because maybe Scriabin is a pianist, mostly a composer of piano, mostly in orchestra. And I'm a violinist. And I thought, yeah, Scriabin, now the pianist, are listening to Scriabin. 
But dude, uh, his etudes and his sonatas, especially the later ones, wow! Uh, I just discovered it's like I discovered a new classical composer. I mean, I'm I'm so excited. But that's nice. either here nor there. This just happened to him a couple of days ago, so I'm just reporting. Well, so so this is a wonderful segue, and so you can see what I was building to. And so the book that um, I pulled out is the string quartet a history <laughs> by by paul griffiths so it's a book that um you know because shostakovich's string quartets bartok string quartets um beethoven uh the yeah. late string quartets these are you know i continue to explore them however i explore them as um a person who doesn't read music and who never played music so so this book as i pulled it out i see that um it would require one to to read music to to yeah, really it's, it's, dig into the examples they have, but uh, it's a technical, yeah. Any any thoughts on on this book? Uh, did you read it? Why did why I, didn't you I, read it's, it? It's uh, where'd you get it? Yeah, no, it's a more of a reference book for me. Uh, I believe it's considered to be a classic in the field of uh, yeah. string quartet literature. <laughs> this <laughs> enormous field. Um, but you know, I you know, Rob, I went to Greenwood Music Camp in the Berkshires in Massachusetts yep. when I was a teenager, and it really, really affected me, uh, really transformed my life in a way because I already loved music and I had a special special relationship to it. But at Greenwood, and I went there for five summers, uh, five weeks each summer. So that's that's a lot of weeks. Uh, each week we would be um, put into groups, mostly string quartets, because mostly string players, uh, <clears throat> some pianists. Um, uh, there was a different, uh, different camp from, for the woodwind people and, and the brass, you know, so it was just mostly strings and, and a few pianists. Um, and so they would divide us into groups every, every, um, Monday morning would get our assignments. We'd have, uh, you know, I would put you know, second violin in the Haydn string quartet and blah, 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 movement number two, uh, or, you know, there'd be a, a, an octet, an occasional octet, you know, Mendelssohn octet or whatnot. Uh, quintets, your your Brahms piano quartets, all these arrangements, and we would be off and practicing in a little practice cabins throughout the woods, uh, you know, and then play ping pong between, have wonderful food, just wonderful. I mean, it's really uh, quite um, a pivotal sort of experience for me. Uh, uh, and so the string quartet became sort of my favorite uh, sound. And I'll stop there. It's my favorite sound. Uh, the string quartet is just, for me, is the perfection of voices, yeah. the it, combination of voices. You have the cello, which is the closest to the human voice. You have yeah. the, 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 it, the timbre of the, the viola. I mean, and it's then the most expressive um, yeah. arrangement, right? It's See, I, so I, 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 find, I, I find less ability to, I find, how shall I say this? Uh, symphonies have to be very particular for me to really, really be drawn in. And I, you know, there's, there's many that have done that, but there just isn't the, the expressive quality, the personal quality that you get from, from those four musicians, right? It's so special. Right, right, right. And then the, the, the occasional pianist, so I'll, I'll allow an occasional pianist. No, I'm kidding. I mean, I mean, the Shostakovich, speaking of Shostakovich, the, his piano quintet, uh, I played the second violin, I believe, I believe I was, it was, it was Jason's group. He was an amazing, he is, he is an amazing violinist. He's a violinist at the Boston Symphony Orchestra right now. Uh, my buddy, my buddy, Jason from camp. He's a, he's a professional violinist uh, at the BSO. Um, he played first violin, and we we played the the piano uh, quintet Shostakovich. It 
to this day, if I listen to it, I have to get up. I have to move my body. I have to just like be right into the music. I'm like one of those weird, you know, mosh pit people. I jump around like like I have some electricity going through me. So I really enjoy that, and and it just provides me as uh, an ending food for for my soul. How, interestingly enough, it also the quartet Rob ended me. <laughs> oh. <laughs> When I kind of sort of stopped being, you know, taking lessons in my early 20s, I played in college, um, had some fun with that. Post-college, you know, not so much. The violin ended up being under the bed collecting dust. I picked it up again in my early 30s. I played with some, believe it or not, I played with some rock groups and, and jazz people around New York just because I wanted to play something. And I would pick up, you know, Craigslist ads for violinists and I would go around in funky, you know, Brooklyn neighborhoods or somewhere in Manhattan, and I would play with jazz groups or with this guy who was trying to write songs. Um, and then when I moved to Orange County, in um, when, when, I, when I lived in Orange County, uh, I went to a, um, a community college program for kind of like people who wanted to continue playing their instrument. And it, what it was, it's really cute. It was mostly senior citizens, you know, people in the 60s and 70s, who just kind of wanted to keep up with their playing. And so they got into groups through this community college. And so I, I got into that and I was one of the youngest people there and I was invited to perform with some people. And I call it my octogenarian quartet because the, I was the first violin and I was what, in my thirties. And then my second violinist was this beautiful Ellen lady from Colombia. She was just you know, in her 70s, I think, but very well put together, very, I think she was a wealthy Colombian. And then the violist was um, was uh, actually a violinist of who who, uh, who did the viola because we had no violist, but he, Carl, his name was Carl. He was in his late 80s or some mid to late 80s. The guy had a, a freaking uh, uh, a hearing aid or two or seven. I don't know. He could barely hear. He gave me his business card. And he was so cute, Rob. He was so cute. It's a <laughs> Carl, his last name, whatever. Violinist. Nice. That's all it said. Carl, blah, blah, violinist. Nice. Uh, and so, and then we, our cellist was also a guy in his, I believe, late 60s, early 70s. And so we had these wonderful uh, just jam sessions, you know, uh, we just just put something on the music stand, whatever, and we would just read through it, and we had so so much fun. But with that group as well, I um, a slightly different configuration from that community college. I, I started playing Messiaen, uh, the quartet for the end of time. And I don't know if you know, but this this uh, weird was he Catholic or something French Catholic uh, composer who at one point went around recording bird song and then and then and then composing bird song right into his comp compositions and this quartet uh pour la fin du temps uh, in french he um i believe he played it in as a prisoner of war uh, during during the second world war he got mm. some musicians and he played it uh, it was some some touching story like that i remember but uh, for me it was the end of my playing because this piece is fucking hard, man. For yeah. violinist, you have to be in the tip-top shape. Uh, you really have to be able to go way up there in the register. And I just was, my my technique was not up to par. And I tried. I muddled through. We had some fun with it. But I remember at the end of that, uh, you know, trying to play this piece at the end of that semester or something, I was like, okay, I think I'm going to put the violin down. <laughs> so... But I'm still obviously listening to it. But the, I think a quartet kind of the end, the end of time. I think it was it was perfect. It was poetically perfect. Nice. I ended it. <laughs>
Yes. Yeah, so classical music. Yeah. I mean, you and I both have perhaps, you know, off the top of my head. I mean, I, we, we mentioned William T. Volman in Europe Central. Um, there, there, there must be a string of novels that that uh, deal with classical music or with with musicians. And, and I think I think any I, I, any like like you go into Bernhard, Thomas Bernhard. Uh, you've got yeah, right. Of course, like the that. loser. Which any, we did. Anybody. Yes. Well, like and I'm reading. Um, uh, Mauro Javier Cardenas. Uh, I'm reading his first novel, uh, yep. "The Revolutionaries Try Again." This is just awesome title. Um, and you know, he's got. In fact, that's how I, I was like Scriabin. He's writing. He's writing about Scriabin. I'm like, let me listen to some Scriabin. I'm like, holy shit! That's when I'm like Scriabin. Why haven't I been paying attention? Because there's some. Because I just thought, you know, this is not my taste, and I just never listened to it. And then, for some reason, I listened to it, and then well, it's beautiful. I mean, what what the hell was I thinking? So it's, I love books that I have this kind of stuff built in, not necessarily as a theme, because then I think it's too much, right. but as, as, as the very fabric of, of what the, the, the novelist is exploring, because it's part of us. Yeah. I mean, and, I don't, and, and, and a, you know, as a, as a Proustian, I'd, I'd have to point out that, uh, you know, in, um, in Swan's Way, the first, first volume of In Search of Lost Time, there's the famous violin sonata that, that uh, makes the narrator, um, that brings back memories to him much in the way that right. the Madeline cookie does. Yeah. So, so maybe that's something I need to explore in an essay of some kind. Uh, We've got the Kreutzer Sonata, Tolstoy. Yeah. 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 For sure. There's, there's a lot of that kind of stuff, but it's part of, I mean, he can't separate it. You just can't, yeah. you can't separate it from something like call it like a classical music novel or whatever, you know, it's just totally. not totally. even work that way. Um, so I want to throw, uh, uh, go back to a novel. I want to throw this out at you, and and you've got a, a lovely little edition, probably from the the 1980s. It's a Penguin edition, and um, the general editor of this uh, collection uh, from Penguin is Philip Roth. And the title Ooh. of in the title of this series from Penguin is Writers from the Other Europe. General <laughs> general editor Philip Roth. So that's really cool. Yeah, and then this book is introduced by Chase Law Milos. That's really cool. And so the 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 title the author is Vitold Gombrovich. Oh and boy. The title is Ferdy Dirk. So, so so I mean, having Philip Roth and Chase Law Milos as part of the, you know, editor and intro is is really cool. And I'll just say this before I turn it to you. So my I have not read Gombrowicz. Uh, he's a Polish writer, but my very positive intro uh, is, you know, that I love the Mexican writer Sergio Pitol. Mm -hmm. So when Sergio Pitol was working for the um, the Mexican Foreign Service, one of his postings was in in Poland uh, during the communist era, I believe in the '60s, and he. Um, uh, loved and was was you know massively in, influenced by Gombrowicz. So I, I have really positive uh, intro from mm. from one of my my dudes uh, about Gombrowicz. So tell us about this book. Well, uh, let me go back to my rather salacious intro to Gombrowicz. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well. Do you remember the, the is it the the the, the Peabody Institute, the library that we used to go to? Yeah, so we the, we we stole we stole on the road from that. Yes, you still have it. You yes, still have it. I know. I'm so sorry, library. I'm a bad bad boy. Um, we were um, 15, so you. Yeah, we were stupid. Yeah. Apologies, uh, but um, 
I remember just roaming. It's a wonderful library, multi-stories, like big windows, lots of light. Some um, guys have, right? Like before it was a library. Yeah, it was some some wealthy guy's house, and and they they luckily turned it into a library. Uh, uh, and I just have some wonderful memories from there. I, 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 uh, so that's that's our <laughs> just wandering the shelves. I see this book, something with pornography. I'm like, I'm yeah, I'm 16, 15, 16, 17. I get attracted to it. Pornography in the fiction section? Yes, please. So <laughs> <laughs> so it's it was a there, there was no internet folks at that time. No, so it's pornography was very obscure yes, and hard to and, find. Yeah. Yes, and for bookish types, if you saw something in the library, you went straight for it. Um, uh, so it was uh, Gombrowitz, of course, his uh, Pornographia, uh, one of his novels. Um, yep. I don't remember reading it, frankly. I just probably like looked at it like, oh, this is too, this is not pornography. So I put it back. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but that's how I remember him. And 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 of course, more and more references to Gombrowitz as my as my reading evolved, uh, sent me back to him uh, this time for legitimate reasons. And and uh, Ferdy Duke is is um it's just a it's a wild ride, man. It's a wild ride. It's it's we were just talking about uh you know under the volcano and the sort of the somber mood of that book, uh, though it does have exuberant parts. Uh, don't get me wrong, but but Ferdy Duke is pretty much all exuberance. Uh, uh, the concept is exuberance. Uh, it's 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 um, a, a poke a poke in the eye for a lot of people. That's what uh, Gorbowitz was trying to do. Um, you know, he left. He left uh, Poland um, right. I think in the nick of time it was something like the last ship to leave before the Nazis took over, or something like oh, that. Yeah. It was a really fascinating story. Um, and then he went to South America to Argentina, uh, which is where um, you know the big fat uh, edition of his um, uh, the diary, his, his diaries, his beautiful edition, which I, I think is also in one of my boxes in your garage. Um, I urge you to decatify it as, as quickly as you can, because that's a wonderful, wonderful volume. Uh, it, it famously begins with, um, you know, uh, Monday, me, Tuesday, me, Wednesday, me, something like that. You know, the whole week is just me. Yeah. Um, uh, but Duke is the first book I read by him. And it's, um, it, it, it it really um, it stood Polish literature on its uh, on its head a little bit. Uh, I, I don't want to review the book because honestly I can't do it justice uh, just from memory. Um, but I do remember the sense of um, uh, transgression and the sense of fun and something that propelled me to uh, consider Grombrowitz as somebody who was pivotal to literature in the 20th century. So for sure, a wonderful book. It's a short book. You can probably read it in yeah. the weekend. Yeah. And, and, you know, again, it was, uh, uh, I'm just looking at, it looks like this edition was published in uh, 86 or something. So it was from the 80s. Mm -hmm. And it, it's funny, the uh, the blurbs on the back are a, a perfect time capsule of like big names mm -hmm. at the time. So John Updike, of course, is like, mm -hmm. you know, blah, 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 master of verbal burlesque, you know. And Updike, of course, was reviewing very actively in The New Yorker at the time. Mm -hmm. And then a person who I think is, is, falling into obscurity and maybe that's fine is uh, the Czech writer Mil Milan Kundera who I mean this guy was like a freaking <sighs> all-star in the 80s yeah. and 90s and I, I remember um you know I went to Czechoslovakia as a student in you know 91 92 and I, I remember you know being a romantic young guy at the time and thinking like wow I'm in Prague where Milan Kundera you know <laughs> was was writing and living you know uh 20 years earlier um, 
Does anyone read Milan Kundera anymore? I think so. I think he's still, you know, he's still, I mean, he's got movies based on his books, right? So he's still. But, but that was years ago. I think, I think years I, it was years ago. And there was, I, I remember seeing something about people saying something online about uh, is, is Kundera, uh, Kundera is even uh, relevant anymore, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I, I, I am ashamed to admit I'm one of those people who hasn't read anything by Kundera. I it's, just did not okay. get to him. I've certainly am familiar with the name. Uh, I love his titles, the unbearable uh, lightness, lightness of being. Yeah, great, being, title. uh, great titles. Um, I I don't think he was particularly somebody who uh, pushed the form. I, correct me if I'm wrong, Rob. Yeah, no, uh, he, he was. He uh, just what, spoke to the times, and I think the times have moved on. So and, I, I don't know exactly how to, how and, to frame and it, this. And there's a lot of romance associated with, um, you know, the, pro, the, the Czech resistance, right? The Soviets invaded but in 68. You have Rabal, Bohemil Rabal, uh, who I glom to so 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 quickly and so closely. You, yeah, you would not like Kundera, to be so honest. So why? I don't know why exactly. I, I mean, maybe that's look, why I would never try. Maybe I tried reading him at one point, yeah. 20, 30 and, years ago, and it just didn't go. And I'm like, oh, it's not for me. And unlike Rabal and Vaslav Havel, like Kundera, like skipped skipped uh, skipped out right after the Prague Spring and, and, oh, right. he and moved to France. He lived right. a, yeah, he was in Paris. And so right. a lot of people are like, wow, you're you're such a, you know, you're such an activist, you know, you're against the totalitarian state. Yeah, that's pretty easy when you're in Paris. Right. Right. You know, try try try, you know, Vaslav Havel was sent to a freaking beer factory for like three years in the seventies, you know? <laughs> that's okay. Rabal was born in the beer factory. <laughs> <laughs> Um, was it, did he have some connection as a child? Wasn't his mom like, uh, like a prostitute or no, did he have a connection with a bordello or am I thinking of some, some other talking about Kundera or Herbal? Uh, uh, Herbal. Uh, no. Okay. I think it was some other author. I don't believe so. No, they, they, he, he was either born in a brewery or lived in a brewery. His, his family had connections to a brewery, uh, in Brown and the Pilsner, yeah, um, I've been there. Yeah, uh, he's got a lot. I mean, he's you know, he's a he's, he's a pub tailor. Teller. He's, he tells pub tales. Really, Rabal. Yeah. He's a big drinker. But I don't remember anything about prostitution. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm sorry. sure it's a backstory there. Um. So yeah. So so that that's you know yet yet another writer who uh, Gombrovich who yeah I I, I want to well, check out will yeah. check out. I think if you're um, going to explore Gabrovitz, I think Ferdy Duke is the thing to do. What you can yeah. do with the diary, which, like I said, I think is in your garage, uh, I would fish <laughs> it out uh, and I would just peruse it. I would just uh, ramp open to random pages, read some things because he's got a bunch of things. He was very, even though he's in South America, he felt very far away from cultural. He suffered. He really suffered. He, he felt um, cut out from the cultural center of his life. You know, he was in the periphery somewhere and, you know, in the antipodes of the world. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, so he, but he kept on being engaged. I think he subscribed to all of the journals or something like that. He wrote articles for the journals, but his creativity, I think, suffered uh, as we're talking about Kundera and leaving. When you leave your soil, something happens. You know, when you leave that native um, language um, and culture, and you transplant yourself somewhere, especially if you're already established. Um, then, then there's, a, there's, there's some sort of a fermentation happens with this new surroundings, and you become something different. And so yeah. it's hard to, like Nabokov. I'm going back to Nabokov. It's my he's my template for this kind of this kind of stuff. Um, you know, he moved out of Russia and then 
And then he tried to translate his own books written in English back to Russian, and he couldn't do it because he lost touch with that. Um, he admitted so so much. You know, he, he lost touch with that. Uh, whatever keeps language alive and current in the moment, which is something that happens around you with the people talking, people exchanging things in the language. Uh, and if, if you don't have that uh, on a mass scale, you you lose some of that uh, uh, beneficial sort of uh, surroundings that 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 create this incredible fermentation process of, of art and i don't know exactly where i'm going with this but yeah I, this, this this connections you know this connections that we were just talking about uh, all the books that you pulled out yeah they seem to have interesting connections that way you know all right so we're we're getting to the end but i i want to throw out one more book so um just because i'm i don't really know a lot about this volume and i i i guess i'd like your quick sort of like quick. do it or move on and again I, I was attracted to the fact that a fascinating collaboration to produce this volume. This book was introduced by Paul Oster. Remember him? Yeah. yeah. And, and it was translated and there was an afterword by Robert Bly. You know, again, oh, another boy. like so interesting. So this is the uh, Norwegian writer, uh, Newt Hampson. And, oh, and so the novel is is Hunger. Hunger. So winner of the Nobel Prize in Literature. So oh. this volume... Very cool little volume published in 2000. Again, Paul Oster and Robert Bly. So apparently Robert Bly uh, speaks Norwegian. Like, what the hell? Oh, dude, dude, dude. What, what's up with that? And then, and then I- Thompson is as, as problematic as he is. You uh, working on Racine, uh, not Racine. Who are you talking about? <laughs> Celine. Uh, Celine. Celine, sorry. I, I love Racine that. Racine is also that's worthy that's... of study, but, uh, but yes. different author. Uh, because Newt Hampson was a, a Nazi sympathizer, right? He he um, he he chose the wrong side, and he was an idiot. I'll say. Uh, he was an idiot, and he he got punished to a certain extent by his by his own country. Um, but put that all aside, please, because and the, you know the reason why I mentioned uh, you know Celine's because this this whole connection. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, put that all aside because as a writer. Um, he is. He will speak to you, Rob. He will definitely speak to you right away. Hunger is um, is not the first book that I started with. I should have started with this one, but I, I believe I started with Pan, and then I quickly read most, if not all, of Hampson because I want to save some for a rainy day. Yeah. Um, um, uh, yeah. Thomas Bernhardt has, has you know you know you know me. I love intensity in in fiction. I love intensity in prose. It propels me forward. I want to. I want something that's close to the existential bone that that means something to me, whether it's written a couple of days ago or 150 years ago. And so this stuff was written a long time ago, but it speaks. It will speak to you, man, because it's uh, it's and, about a and, and it's you know, about could, desperation, man. Yeah. It's about desperation and creativity, which and, is the, and I, just and I should great. add. It was originally published in 1890. We're talking about a 19th century yeah. novel here. This is not, yeah. you know, some edgy yeah. post-World War II book. Yeah. Um, it's amazing. It's 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 just Dostoevskian in the best sense. Uh, yeah. It's got that uh, got shades of uh, the the underground man. It's got uh, it's got its own kind of uh, Nordic uh, Scandinavian <laughs> spin. Um, it takes place in Christiania, which is Oslo, which is one of my favorite cities in the world. Uh, I've actually been there now. Yay. Um, so I, I, you know, he lived in America. He came to America. He was, a, a like a factory worker or something in Detroit, something like, yeah. I, I might, my, the, the details might be wrong a little bit, but something like that. And, uh, he, 
he really he just he, you know he was in the he was in the just he's a working man kind of writer um but he just he didn't compromise non-compromising amazing existential like author uh who is amazing in translation uh read uh, anything you can get hands on hunger start with hunger that's a good one yep. um uh, Panda is shorter if you want to start with something like that. Uh, Mysteries is oh, I just oh, I just love him. I just love him because every time you open a, a Hampson book, you know you're gonna have this kind of a uh, an outsider uh, artist type or creative type, an outsider eccentric, which you know for me is always uh, you know attractive yeah. uh, because I guess I'm one of those people. <laughs> or you know seems to be like that. Um, so I yeah. No, no, no question about it. I believe he's a Nobel Prize guy, right? He won the Nobel. He is, yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, Paul um, Auster, uh, I think, modeled uh, some of his uh, City of Glass uh, trilogy uh, a little bit on Hampson. Maybe not modeled, but certainly there's there's that kind of, uh, you know, outsider eccentric kind of yeah. in a big city, you know, so, type so, of feel. So here, here's I'll, I'll end on a mean comment, and my <laughs> wife says. When when I, when I say mean things, it usually means I'm in a great mood. So so, Paul Oster, I I have to say I'm glad that he just is not really a part of the conversation anymore. I I just no, you okay. know Fair you, enough. you you know in France that he was to the French he was like the American writer par excellence. Like they worshipped him, they they listened to him. Like he would go over to France and do a book tour. And they would just do cartwheels, like tell us, you know, great oracle of, right. of North America, well, of, know, of, of right. Anglo-Saxon, Rob, you, you know, literary mentality. And it would drive me crazy. Yeah. You know, I'm a Francophile, you know, to the well, day I die. Bob, just, just, I'm sorry to burst your bubble. Paul Auster is an incredible Francophile as well. I, I know. And, I, and that's lived, why the French. Uh, he lived there. He translated French poetry early on in his career. And that's uh, why the, that's why the French had a weakness for him because he. He spoke their language and he was, you know, a Francophile himself. But I, I think it clouded their vision of, um, you know, his, his output was. I agree with you. And I think if they read is, some of this later, really, we'll probably agree with you as well. I think, I think he had some interesting stuff early he, on. He I, did. I remember reading As, as a guy in my twenties, I remember, Rob, I remember specifically, and I, I've never I, done this before or since. You were into him in the, in the nineties. I remember. Listen to me. I was, yes, yes. I was in my twenties. Moon Palace was good. I will give you that. Yes, I read a whole trilogy of his books, and then I read some a bunch of other things. That that City of Glass trilogy, I believe that's what it's called. Um, and I, this is the only time, Rob. And I wasn't like, I mean, I really loved it at the time because it spoke to me. For, it was just the right timing. Then we talk about the timing, reading the books at the right time. I mean, if I try to read right now, I just don't think I would enjoy it as much. And I would agree with you for the most part. But at the time, and I was reading um, the, this trilogy, it was the only the only time I've I've walked and read at the same time. <laughs> Wow! Yeah, I remember I mean, walking on the sidewalk. That's love. Because that's I was like, I, I thought to get to the store or something. I forget, but I was like, oh crap! And I really want to finish it, so I was walking and reading. That's and love. then I, at some point, became aware that I was doing that, and I thought of myself as a very stupid, silly man. Um, but and I haven't done it since. But that's the only time I've done it. So hey, that's uh, something. I think the City of Glass will speak to a lot of people. He's uh, is a, he's a capable writer. Um, well, sure, but but just when you consider who they could have elevated from, you know, the end of the 20th century. I mean, let's, I mean, uh, it, 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 I think it shows again, the, the, the French, uh, 
rarely find an Anglo-Saxon writer who speaks French and can kind of speak in their yeah. language. Um, you know, one one writer who might fill that void these days and I think is deserving of it is uh, Edward St. Aubin, the English writer who wrote the, the Patrick Melrose novels. He right. speaks French uh, and he he often goes to France and, and does interviews in French and blah, blah, blah. But um, I don't want to go too far on that because we probably should wrap it up. But uh, yeah, so sorry, Paul Oster fans, I guess we- Yeah, no, look, look I'm, I'm trying to we, defend him we, a little bit. I, I'm going to give him some props because uh, last last blast year, uh, he um, wrote the script to one of my favorite yeah. films of all time, Smoke, yep. uh, directed by Wen Wang yep. uh, with uh, Harvey Keitel, um, is it John William Hurt? I always confuse them. John Hurt, uh, one of those guys. Um, <laughs> Smoke. It's called Smoke. S M O K. Watch this it, movie. It's a quiet, quiet uh, gem. Is that is that the one where like they keep showing people at cafe tables and they talk that's, about like, that's smoke? That, no, that's blue in the face. That's the blue follow. in the face. Okay, that's that's the the sequel to Smoke. So to speak. <laughs> I, I remember. So this Lou Reed, Lou Reed. But do you remember uh, in Blue in the Face there was he's a filmmaker also and. Uh-huh. He he kept going. He goes. He goes. Why when you watch those those World War Two movies? Why do oh, the Nazis, Nazis always like smoke that. with the cigarette? Uh, it's, do you remember his, that scene with the Patterson. cigarette? Oh my gosh! What's what, his, what's the name of that director? Yeah, he's he's very the, good. Yeah, Dead man, Dead man. Uh, come on, come on, Dead he, man. Right. Yeah. Uh, he actually, uh, he he did a documentary on Lou Reed after Lou Reed died. So those those two were friends. Um, you know, the name will come to Jim us. Jim Jarmus. Jim Jarmus. How could I forget perfect. Jim? Yes, I nice love novel. Jim Jarmus. Yes. yes. But like, I'm yeah, sorry. why do the Nazis always have the cigarette between, you know, their pinky and their index finger in those right. movies? Is, is, it, is it a German thing? Right. That was <laughs> that was hilarious. Even Lou Reed in that movie, uh, just talking about quitting smoking and just smoking. Yeah. Yeah. His, uh, yeah, with his ringlets still, with his that seventies, right. uh, and, and Tom, Tom Waits, and they were talking about coffee, and cigarettes. Oh yeah, well that's, that's a different movie. Coffee and cigarettes is a, that's that's a Jim Jarmusch movie. Now we're talking okay. about. Damn. it's not blue in the face. So you you can yeah, it's, they're they're very similar in, in mood. But yeah. but uh, um, uh, coffee and cigarettes is actually also one of my favorite films. Yeah. By the way, the last. Uh, the last scene it's it's composed of a bunch of scenes i'm let's let's end it on this the last scene uh, of coffee and cigarettes by jim jarmusch is um probably my favorite scene of all time in all of cinema i'm sure i've talked about this before to you i think it's called champagne and something champagne and cigarettes or something like that uh, i believe it's the last scene or maybe it's close to the last scene it's these two janitors they're sitting in some sort of nondescript uh new york city warehouse uh, type of deal and they're on their break and this wonderful old uh, actor, Dr. I'm sorry, the name escapes me. I've seen him before. He's just wonderful. And he just pretends, he, he, he thinks he can hear some opera. And you hear this tiny little sound of this opera in the background in this warehouse. And he's just, you know, just spacing out to this beautiful sound. It's obviously just in his head. And the other guy's just steadily smoking a cigarette during his break, you know, sort of the reality of things of just being in a warehouse and this other guy is just in the in heaven. And I think it's it captures for me the whole state of being alive. You're both in the shit, you're both having to deal with things. And if you have the sense for it, and I really want people to cultivate the sense and to acknowledge that everybody has it, you you hear that. You hear yeah. that beautiful music. Yeah. Beautiful so music, let's, man. Let's keep, let's keep listening. 
So we'll end there. And I think um, I'd like to have this as a regularly recurring. Um, it was fun. And, and I'll, I'll be digging into your bookshelf, your your boxes, you know, for years here. So I think yeah, it should be fun. Put a mask on and, and uh, you know, yeah. get, some, get some allergy and, pills and first. Again, if, if anyone has any tips, <laughs> contact us at Feel Bookish. So uh, that's a good way to end. So follow us on Twitter at Feel Bookish. I should also say that we've kind of revived our Instagram account and we've we've found a lot of you are active on Instagram, which is really cool. So at Feeling Bookish Podcast, or it's under my name, Robert Fay. So you can search that way. Please follow us. And also a reminder to, um, if you can, on Apple Podcasts, to give us uh, a review, uh, good or bad. Uh, they, they help so that um, other folks can find us. So that's it. We'll sign off. Heston Hoffman, thank you so much. And Roman, enjoy the rest of your day in pleasant, sunny California. Thank you, buddy. Talk soon. Okay, bye.